If you've got your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 14. We're going to continue our series today. We're in the middle of this series that looks at the teachings of Jesus at or around the table. We started actually this particular passage in Luke 14 last week as Jesus is gathered at the house of someone that's very important and they're uh, walking through a meal together and as Jesus uh, teaches in the midst of that he first heals a man that had swelling they call dropsy he's maybe like congenital heart failure swelling of his body because of extra fluid and then he begins to talk about how we should be humble and also how we should always look to uh, not only be humble in our response to others but that we ought to invite people that can do nothing for us. And so in the midst of that, he's going to teach another lesson that we're going to look at today that we're going to be a part of. So, again, Luke chapter 14. We're going to be looking today specifically at verses 15 through 23. Um, two of my favorite words in the English language center around this idea that we've talking about with, um, with eating. And that is simply the two words, let's eat. Thanksgiving's coming up, and I always remember, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago as a child that I didn't even get a chance on the children's table, that I was on the ironing board, but I remember there was all this kind of buildup, especially to, to Thanksgiving. You know, it's not Christmas where there are presents coming. Um, it's not Halloween where there are candy coming. It's not Easter where there may be Easter eggs or, or other things. That Thanksgiving, the main event was always the food. And so you would go, we went to grandparents' house, two grandparents' house. We'd have one for lunch and one for dinner, and they lived about 20 miles apart. But you'd get there early in the morning, spend time with cousins and family and have conversation. And then you would have that moment when the preparation had been done, when all the food had been cooked, when all the sides that had been brought from different families were there, and when everything was finally ready, and somebody would say, in some form, some fashion, Let's eat. It's time. And I remember even as a child how excited I was when those particular words were said. Let's eat. Now here's the thing about eating, and even in those times of Thanksgiving or just in the regular part of a meal. Oftentimes, coming to the table is more than just about the food. And when we're said, let's eat, it's more than just, hey, it's time to fulfill the needs of hunger that we have in our lives. It's also about a connection. It's also about a relationship. And at the table, we experience fellowship and engagement and hospitality. Eating together is important. In our lives, the friends that we make, the meals that we share, the moments that we have are important for our lives. I read a study this week that Harvard did several years ago now, but it found that kids who regularly eat with their parents, on a regular basis they eat with their parents. Now, usually that's around the table, but in some form or fashion they eat with their parents. That those kids that regularly, and I'm not sure how they define regularly, but pretty like multiple times a week, found that they were 72%, those kids, were 72% less likely to experience depression, struggle with self-esteem, have suicidal thoughts, have decent eating disorders, or to be engaged with illegal drugs. Now, as we read the gospel, we realize that Jesus understood the importance of it. It's not just families today that understand the importance of our eating together. Jesus understood that as well. And as we read the Gospel of Luke, we get an invitation to his table. And Jesus' invitation is for those who don't know him or been a part of his family, for those that 
feel far from him, or even people that have drifted away. And so today what I want to do is we look at the second part of this story of Jesus eating at this important person's house is ask, what is the invitation that is here? Who's included in the invitation and how can it be missed? Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 15, says this. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I love this little part here. It's just a little note here, and I'm not sure who did this, but you can imagine, as we talked last week, that as Jesus began to talk about humility and who you're inviting to your uh, events and really calling on the carpet the people that had invited him here, really trying to challenge the leaders, religious leaders, important people, business leaders of that community, that he got a little tense in the room. And as someone will often do when there's tension in the room, somebody tries to break that tension. And they say, well, wouldn't it be great when we're all together in the kingdom? I know we have some disagreements. Wouldn't it be awesome when we're together in the kingdom and everybody's eating together? And so for a long time, they had kind of envisioned this idea that when God came into his rightful place, when the world that is to come was there, that there would be feasting, that that these feasts that they were doing, the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Passover feast, the feast of that they were enacting each year, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and all of those were just like play acting for the great feast. And so this person tries to say, oh, no, we, no, we have disagreements with this. Won't it be great when we're all together and we don't have to worry about this anymore? It's sort of like us when we say things like, you know, won't it be great in the by and by, or I'll fly away, or when we all get together, we don't have to worry about this anymore. And there's truth in that, but this particular person is trying to stamp down the tension in the room. He's trying to say, wait a minute, that's not all that's there. Let's remind ourselves of what's going on. And so Jesus hears that, and he's going to tear a parable about the fact that make sure you're going to be at that feast. He in turn says, listen, yes, it will be awesome for those of us at the feast, but make sure you've accepted the invitation that has come for that. He's trying to smooth over the conversation, and Jesus turns it into a convicting parable. Now, another thing that I want you to notice here is how Jesus will often use this idea that eating like this, he, he doesn't say, no, no, it won't be a party, it won't be a, a banquet, it won't be a great in the kingdom. He uses as kind of a picture of what the kingdom of God is going to be like, this picture of a party. Let me ask you, what's your image of heaven? What's your idea of heaven? When people say, hey, I can't wait to get to heaven, what do you imagine happening there? For a lot of people, it's not the most exciting place they think of. They think of like an eternal choir practice or even like sitting on a cloud playing a harp and just being just being peaceful. There will be peace there, but our understanding of peace is different than biblical understanding of peace often. And what we do know from Scripture is, yes, there will be those moments of quiet reflection, I'm sure. I'm sure there will be good uh, intimate moments there with people that we know and with our Savior but another description that is used often in Scripture about what it's going to be like in heaven is that it's going to be a party, an absolute party, a blast. What kind of party? Well, Luke 15 gives us a little bit of the picture of that when the prodigal son, that's the next chapter, by the way, from where we're reading, the prodigal son comes, and he comes home, right? And the dad throws him the party of all parties. A party so big that the older brother gets mad. Like, why haven't you done this for me? This is awesome. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. 
The party that we are going to experience when we get to heaven is going to be unlike anything we have ever experienced in our lives. And I just want to be real honest with you. American Baptists are going to have some issues adjusting, I think, to what's going to happen there. Because it's not going to be prim and proper all the time according to our standards. People are going to be on fire for the Lord, giving praise and honor to him and celebrating the victory of the God who saved us. In fact, one person wrote, and I love this phrase. Jesus came to restore the eternal party for which God created us. That fellowship, that joy, is what Jesus came to restore. So this guy says, hey, listen, won't it be great when we're there? Won't it be awesome, Jesus, when we're all there together? And really, like, Let's just settle down and all that. And Jesus, instead of settling down, ramps up the comparison. Verse 16. Then he told them, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. Now, that's important because a large banquet inviting many means that this man had the means to pay for it. He was an important person in the community. This would have been a like a big-time event in their area. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to those who were invited to come because everything is now ready. In other words, this is the let's eat. Now, just so you understand, when you threw a big party in their day, you sent ahead a save the date or actually more of a save the week kind of card. They, they couldn't know exactly when all the provisions would get there, when all the guests could get there, when people could be allowed, when everything was going to work out. It wasn't like today where you could set a timer, you get your cookbook and you set it up and you did that. There were lots of moving parts that had to happen. And so they would say, sometime during this week, we're going to have a huge banquet I'll let you know when all the preparations are ready so that you can come. And so in order to get the second invitation, you had to say yes to the first invitation. And so we sent out the first invitation. All these people said, yeah, yeah, we'll be there. Awesome. It's going to be an awesome banquet. Can't wait to be there. And then he sends out the second invitations. Verse 18. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The words without exception are important there. Every single one of them said, oh, wait, I've got something else going on. So they accepted the first one. And then when the second one came along and it was time, they said, oh, no, 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 I've got something else going on. This particular man would have been in a particularly difficult bind. He had paid for the provisions for all of this to happen, and yet no one was coming to his party. And so, Scripture says that all of them without excuses, or without exception made excuses. It goes on in verse 18 to say, The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Verse 19, another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married and therefore I am unable to come. Now, a couple of things about these excuses. First of all, they on their on, on just the, the basic level of looking at them, they seem like reasonable excuses. Listen, I've got some stuff to take care of with my land. I've got some stuff to take care of with my livestock. I've got, you know, I just got married. I've got obligations there. In fact, these were all obligations that could get you out of war in the Old Testament. The difference is they're not being asked to go to war. The reason they could get them out of war is because it might endanger the family and their heritage and their inheritance. That's not what is happening here. What is happening here is they just don't want to come. And by the way, the, the sheer um, audacity of a couple of these guys is amazing. When it says I've bought land, the idea is that would have been a lot of land that you had that sight unseen just bought it. And i got to go look at that real fast after I've already paid the money for it. 
Can't wait to come to your party. Uh, like, that would take me too long. I had to go see my land. The other one, like the five thing of oxen, that would have been like two and a half years worth of a normal wage earner's pay. So this was a wealthy person. It'd be like somebody saying, hey, man, I'd really like to come to your thing, but I just bought five um, Range Rovers, and i got to go check them out. Like, why are you buying five Range Rovers? That's ridiculous. Like, why did, why did you buy them without seeing them? And like, they, they seem like crazy kind of excuses. The point here is not, hey, their excuse is valid or invalid. The point here is they all said no. Verse 21. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servants, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Master, the servant said, what ordered has been done? There's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. What happens here is there's this transition where Jesus goes from, hey, there's a story about this man throwing a party. So he transitions in the midst of it to the first person and says, and no one's going to come to my party that was originally invited. Now, there's some crazy things that kind of happen in this. The way that they say, listen, it's not just scandalous, and it is scandalous that the people said no to coming to the party. In fact, in that particular day and time, for some that large group of people to say no to somebody would have made them an anathema to the community, would have made them an outcast to the community. What he's saying is if that many important people said no to the one throwing the party, that person's social status was done. But what made that even worse, according to that society, according to that time, is who we then went and got to come. It tells us that he says, just go out and find basically whoever you can. The poor, the maimed, the blind, anybody that you can find, bring them here because I want them to be part of this. And then when they still had room, when they still had room, he says, and by the way, go find whoever you can Look at the highways and the hedges and make them come in. Compel them to come. People on the highways and the hedges, just so you know, when it talks about the maimed and the blind and the poor, those were the, those were the edges of society. Those were the ones that were least acceptable, but at least in some way a little acceptable. When he talks about the highways and the byways, when he talks about the outside the edges, he's talking about the outcasts and even those that were not part of the house of Israel. So what does this all have to do with what he's, what he's teaching in this moment? Well, there are a couple of things I think that are important for us, and we're going to kind of dive deeper into one of them. But first, there's this understanding that when it comes to God's kingdom, your status or how much you have or where you are in life is insignificant compared to the fact that Jesus has invited you to come. It doesn't matter how broken you are, how sinful you are, how much you've messed up, how poor you are, how socioeconomically disadvantaged you are. None of that matters because when it comes to the invitation Jesus has placed on our lives, not just a banquet, but on an eternal salvation basis, it does not matter where you were born, who your parents were, what happened to you as a child, where your job is, where you live, whether good or bad, Jesus' invitation is for all. For anyone. The second important point, and I want to speak directly here to those of us that are in a Christian culture, which is most of us, 
And most of you watching today grew up in church, been around church most of your life. Because what Jesus is doing in this particular parable is he is pointing his laser-like focus directly at the wealthy and the religious establishment that is there. And he is saying to them, you have rejected the invitation to the party that God is throwing. Remember how this all started? A guy trying to break the tension and saying, won't it be great when we're all there one day? And Jesus basically looks at those religious leaders and says, you won't. Now, you said you would. You said on the front end, when you've been teaching the Old Testament, you've been praying about it, you've been looking for the Messiah, you've been asking God for the Messiah, you've been asking God for deliverance, you've been asking God to come, you've been asking God to, to work, you've been asking God to throw off the oppression of the Romans, you've been asking God to do all this stuff. But here I am. I am the answer to your prayers. I am the let's eat. The celebration is here. The banquet has happened. Remember what Jesus told his disciples? They're talking about fasting or people are questioning about not fasting. And he says, while the bride is here, we do not fast. While the bridegroom is here, we do not fast. We are feasting. We are celebrating. There will come a day, he says, when I won't be here anymore. But now let's eat. And he's saying to these people, you have missed it. You said that you taught the Old Testament and you saw the signs and the wonders and all that was to come for celebrating what God is doing and who God was going to send. And you have prayed for deliverance. You have prayed for the Messiah. You have prayed for God to act. And God has acted. And you have said, mm, got too much going on. Just bought a land. I got to go check it out. Just bought some, some oxen. I got to go check that out. I just got married. Got that. There are other things that are more important than the invitation you have brought. Which asks me to, to think through this as somebody that grew up in a religious culture, in a religious place. And what I think about in this is that the men that should have most been ready to hear and see God move in Jesus were the ones that missed it. Makes me ask the question, how did they miss it? Why did they refuse to come? What was it that kept them from it? And then the question that I want to ask is, how can I miss the movement of God? Now, I mean that in a big way, first of all. How could I think that I'm okay with the Lord and not be? These guys thought they were perfect with the Lord. They were the Pharisees. They were the leaders of the religious establishment. They thought if anybody's going to be at that banquet, when the eternal, in the life to come, in the age to come, if anybody's going to be there, it's us. There's a passage of scripture in Matthew's gospel that ought to send just a shiver through us and make us truly evaluate where we are with the Lord. It's Matthew 7, 21 through 23. It's Jesus speaking to people just like this in a similar way. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, on that day, many will come to me. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? That's preach. Weren't we preachers? Did we cast out demons in your name? I don't know about you, but, but, but when I hear people casting out demons in the name of Christ, I think of them as like the top level of Christianity. Did we do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, listen, just because you think you're doing religious stuff, doesn't mean that you've got this whole thing figured out and right. And so when I read this parable in Luke chapter 14, I ask the question, so, so how did they miss it? What was it that made them miss it? There are three things that I think we need to see in this passage, and I'm, I want you to think deeply about this. 
The first thing is they did not recognize the importance of the invitation. These excuses may sound legitimate, and in some cases they may be legitimate. But the truth is, compared to the one giving the invitation, they are weak and short-sighted. The one requesting and the event that he's requesting for takes precedence over everything else in their lives. Be similar to me sitting in my office and uh, somebody calling into the office, talking to Deborah and saying, hey, can I speak to Pastor Lau? Now, And perhaps the answer is yes, absolutely, there's time, let's talk. But perhaps there's something else going on. And so Deborah's checked with me or she sees and knows, hey, he's on the other line right now. He'll have to call you back. Like, not going to interrupt that. that that's, that's something else. Or the second thing is, well, he's, he's studying or in the midst of a, a conference or a meeting or, or he's scheduled this time away to be studying with the Lord this morning. And, and so he, he'll have to call you back after a while. Now, that's all sounds like good reasons. Like, hey, that's a good reason. But if it's my wife on the other end calling and the house is on fire, then none of that matters. You need to get him off the phone. If it's my wife on the other end and somebody's hurt, none of that matters. If it's a life or death situation, if it's an important moment, then my excuses become less important. Now imagine for a minute what Jesus is declaring here. He's making a parable as if this is the kingdom of God and you're being invited to the kingdom of God. And instead of taking that invitation, you're going to make sure your land's in order and your possessions are taken care of. And you don't want to worry about your family. In fact, Jesus in the verses just immediately after this says, if you don't hate the people of your family compared to your love and devotion to me, then you can't enter my kingdom. He's telling them, listen, those are weak excuses when it comes to the character of the invitation that you have been given. I don't know how long it's been ago now, but we had a royal wedding in the last couple of years. It's been the longest year of Years that I remember, and so perhaps it was earlier. I think it was last year sometime. And here's the thing. In Buckingham Palace, still hasn't apologized for this. I never received my invitation to the wedding for Meghan Markle, who was marrying Prince Harry. Never never received it. Perhaps it just got lost in the mail. Maybe they forgot. Somehow, I did not get it. I did see one online, though, and there's this interesting phrase at the beginning of it that says, The Lord Chamberlain is, is commanded by the queen to invite, and then they list the name. Now, can you imagine somebody in England, especially somebody that's big time with the monarchy or that family, getting that invitation to the wedding of the year? Some called it the wedding of the century. And being like, eh, I got pass. I got some stuff going on at the house. Uh, I got a meeting may need to take care of. People in England would have done anything to be in that room. In fact, there were all kinds of discussions about who was there and who wasn't there and who was invited and who wasn't invited, why and how and all that. And if you got your invitation, and maybe there were people that said, no, I'm not going to do that for political reasons or other reasons, but it had to be a very good reasons not to come. What we have here, basically, is Jesus telling a parable where it's in like real life, and this is reality in life, that it says, The Lord Jesus, commanded by Almighty God, has invited you to come to the banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb by accepting his invitation. That's still the invitation that's out there today. For lost people, for broken people, 
for addicts and those that are lonely, for sinners and for people who fake it like they think everybody doesn't know that they're just as broken as everyone else. Let me ask you a question out there. Maybe you're at home with family. It's close to Thanksgiving weekend. Maybe you're a college student. You've come back home and you've been in the classroom this year and people are asking questions, making you doubt forms of your belief system. Or maybe you're a young adult and you're with family this week and you've come back in and you're watching today or you're looking at this and you're questioning your faith or like, did I really believe what it was when I grew up? Or maybe somebody's been in church for a long time and you've got all these doubts. Let me just ask you this question, first of all. If it truly is true what the Bible teaches about God, and that he is inviting you into a saving relationship where he can save you for all eternity, isn't that something worth at least checking out seriously? Doesn't that seem to be more important than whatever you've got on your agenda for the next few weeks? As important as that may be, if what the Bible is saying has any possibility of being true about the fact that without Christ we cannot spend eternity with God in heaven, but that those that die without Christ find themselves in an eternal place of punishment, don't you think it's worth at least investigating those claims? In a serious way, not a dismissive way. I heard about a college professor that used to ask students when they came into his classroom, how many of them considered themselves to be Christians? And they would ask, how many of you believe the Bible to be true? And as they raised their hands, and then he would say, how many of you have actually read it? Far fewer hands went up than those that said they believe the Bible to be true, and far fewer hands than those that said they believe to be Christians. And they would ask the question, how many of you read the Harry Potter books? And comparatively, more students who claim to be Christian and believe in the Bible had read all of the Harry Potter books than the Bible. And he says, somehow I don't know that you truly believe the Bible or you would have read it. The point is, isn't this worth something investigating? And not dismissing what's happening with the gospel or what God's called us to do just because we've got other things going on in our lives. First reason people missed it is because they didn't realize the importance of the invitation. Secondly, there were some, and this speaks to this, of who comes invited, that just felt like they weren't worthy of it. Maybe that's you today. It's like the woman a couple of weeks ago we talked about, that she didn't feel like she had any way to be worthy of what Jesus was offering. And Jesus in this particular parable says that when those other people rejected, and it wasn't just because they rejected, he's just saying that the party is open for whoever. And go find anyone that'll come. Scripture says that God is not wanting anyone to perish, but wants all to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so if you're out there today and you feel like you're not good enough to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not good enough to be a part of his family, the first thing I would tell you is that on your own, that is absolutely true. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But Jesus has invited you to the table. He has asked you. 
There was nothing in this parable about the people that went out and got in the hedges and the byways and the high, all of that. None of those people were worthy of the invitation, yet they received it and came and enjoyed the banquet. Christ, because of his worthiness, because of his death on the cross, has made a way for all of us, as unworthy as we are, to come into a saving relationship with him. He just simply says, come. And here's the last reason they missed it. And this is the main one for this group of people. And in the area of the country in which we minister, in which I am a part, it's a major part of what's going on. And that is, they missed it because they didn't realize they needed it. The whole parable is an indictment of a religious community. One pastor has said that religion is the number one substitute for genuine faith and that people that are big into religion miss Jesus more than any other group. And that was certainly true in the New Testament. People that thought they had religion figured out and everything was good are the people that missed Jesus more than anybody else. People that thought, well, it's about living good lives and being socially active and generous and, and, and best you you can be and living strong and being kind and being a good moral person and making sure you don't do bad things. Like they think, I've got all that figured out. And I walked down an aisle when I was a child, even though I didn't understand what it was. That's what everybody did. It was the rite of passage. And I, I got baptized or sprinkled or done whatever it is that the religious practice is. And I, I answered a few questions that they asked me and I knew certain books of the Bible. And that means that I'm okay. That's religion. That's not what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel. None of us can earn our way to salvation in any way at all. Scripture says in Isaiah that our good deeds are like filthy rags. And we will go into the full definition of that, but it's more than just a little bit of dirty rags. It is unclean, filthy rags, and that's the best things that we do compared to our Lord. And as a result, there is nothing that you and I can do to wipe away the sin in our lives. Christianity is not about being a better person. It's not about even saying the right things. It's not about preaching the right things. We talked about that verse earlier that you preached in my name. Christianity is not about living the right way. Christianity is accepting the free gift of Jesus Christ who died for our sins on the cross and realizing that you could not save yourself and saying, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. That's it. We live here in Tennessee, at least, where I grew up. It's increasingly less, but for a large majority of my life in church life, there were lots of people that were just kind of cultural Christians, that they were Christians because their parents were Christians, because their grandparents were Christians, because their great-grandparents were Christians, because they grew up in this church, or my mom was a part of this church, or my grandfather was part of this church, or I was part of, I've been a part of this church since I was born. Just being part of a church and in a Christian environment does not make you a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, sometimes it can be very difficult because you know all the right answers and all the right things to say. Dean and Sarah, who's a pastor down in Tallahassee, Florida, talked about the fact that when he left, he left seminary. He said he remembers standing in seminary parking lot with a guy, and he had a little bit of insecurity on his mission because he was moving back to his hometown of Tallahassee to start a church. 
right in the middle of the Bible Belt, right in the middle of where people already kind of knew what church was. And the guy he was talking to in the parking lot as they're getting ready to move out was going to Northern California to start a church in one of the most unreached areas of the country. And he said, I remember talking to him. I was like, man, I just feel bad because I'm going to a place where there are lots of Christians, and you're going to a place where there are not hardly any. And he says, I'll never forget what the guy looked at me and said. He said, man, I don't envy you at all. This is a Northern California church planner said. The Bible Belt in America may be the hardest mission field we have. Because so many of them think they've already got what Jesus is offering. And yet they've just agreed to a social club agreement with the church. He said, in fact, one of the most difficult things about sharing the gospel in the Bible Belt is, is that you have to convince people they're lost before they can ever get saved. That's what this parable is about. These guys thought they had it figured out. <laughs> Man, won't it be great when we get to the kingdom in a sweet by and by when the roll is called up yonder? I'll fly away. And Jesus looks at him and says, it will be great. But right now you're not there. I want to ask you. Pastor in Memphis used to ask this all the time. Do you know that you know that you know that you're saved. Now that's not based on anything that you or I can do other than accepting the free gift of grace that comes from Jesus Christ. It's admitting that we are sinners that are unworthy of salvation, that can do nothing to provide it for ourselves, yet Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that his sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for our sins, and he is offering us the opportunity to receive who he is and what he's calling us to do. And all we have to do is accept the free gift of grace, of mercy that he's offering, and say, I admit I am a sinner. I believe you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you lived a perfect life before that, and that you rose again from the grave. And I want to confess you as Lord and allow you to change my life. I'm not asking if you can recite the Ten Commandments or you know your books of the Bible. I'm not asking if you've been a part of a church for a long time. I'm asking, do you know that you know that you know that you're saved? Jesus talked a lot about this concept. The book of 1 John talks a lot about this concept. And the idea behind it is this. That you can say you have accepted Christ, but if there is not a visible change in your life, then you need to question that. Some of you are out there saying, wait a minute, Lyle, are you trying to get me to doubt my salvation? Here's what I will tell you. I don't want anybody who is truly saved to doubt your salvation. But I would rather have somebody that is truly saved recommit to the Lord and make sure they're right than to lull somebody that is not a believer into this false sense of security that they're okay because they're a part of a church or they grew up in a religious house, or they've got a Bible that they read occasionally. It's not about the acts that we do. It is about the salvation that comes only from the Lord. That's who makes it to the banquet. Jesus talked oftentimes and said, listen, you need to examine your life. And if there is no spiritual fruit, if there's no evidence in your life. So sometimes people ask me the question, well, what about Billy or Johnny or... or or Janie, 
They were nine years old. They accepted Christ, walked down the aisle, accepted Christ, got baptized right here in the church, Baptist church. Right now, they're not living for the Lord at all. Are they still saved? And here's what I will tell you that I truly believe, honestly believe, biblically believe, that if someone has been saved by Jesus Christ, they are saved once and for all, all time. But I also believe that there are lots of people who grew up in churches that said a prayer that they did not mean in their heart, that followed through a ritual that was not real to them in their lives, and have walked away from the Lord, and there is no evidence of fruit in their lives that are not saved because they never made a true commitment to the Lord. Examine the fruit. Jesus says that you can check whether or not you're one of my followers if you do what I say. Not only will there be fruit in your life, that you'll do what Scripture says. You do what I command. He also says that you can test yourself about your faith, your true faith in Christ about what happens in the storm. If your faith falls in the storm, then it probably wasn't there to begin with. And so here's my question to you. Have you accepted the invitation to the banquet? I'm not asking you if you've done things, prophesied in Jesus' name, cast out demons, done works of righteousness. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you, have you accepted the invitation that Jesus provides to come into his kingdom? Have you admitted to Jesus Christ that you are a sinner? That word just means that you have done things that are not right in the sight of the Lord, and we all have. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have you admitted that to the Lord? Have you believed in Jesus that he is our only way of salvation, that he paid the price for our sins on the cross, that he rose again from the grave, and that he provides salvation. If you believed that in your heart, have you confessed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? If you have not done that, I'm asking you today, why not? And would you be willing to do it right now? I'm going to pray in just a moment. I'm going to ask you, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, today, let it be the day to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for you, for the chance that we have to be reminded of your love for us. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't help us, uh, that you would help us not to trust in ourselves, our own works, but that we would see our need, our desperate need for you. And Lord, I pray that more than anything, Lord, that we will be reminded of the reality of the gospel, the good news that you save us from our sins if we just accept what you've done. I pray, Lord, for those in this that are watching today that have never accepted you. Lord, maybe they've walked through some spiritual stuff, some religious achievements or rites of passage, but they've never accepted you as their Savior. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that, Lord, We would examine our own lives, whether we'd be part of that crew to which you would say, depart from me for I never knew you. And Lord, if we find ourselves there, that we would accept you as our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.